Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Heath Brown, and I'm really interested in how and why people get along and create great scholarship together. This is the co-authored podcast where we look behind the curtain and learn how scholars of politics collaborate one project at a time. In this episode of the co-authored podcast, we focus on the collaboration that everyone has asked about. When I started talking about the idea of this series, nearly everyone said, you mean like the party decides? Yes, that's exactly what I meant. The four authors who came together at UCLA in the late 1990s collaborated on one of the most well-known books of political science in the last generations. So well-known, The book ended up on MTV. Um, The MTV thing does stick out in my mind. We were on the top of the list of the biggest losers from the night of South Carolina. And when we're more of a loser than the losing candidates, um, that that sort of made me uh, stop and think, you know, wow, this has really gotten, gotten maybe a little out of hand. That was Marty Cohen of James Madison University, one of the collaborators on this project. MTV may no longer be just about music videos, but it definitely isn't a regular place for academic book reviews. Why this collaboration landed on MTV has a lot to do with the alternative story it sought to tell about how we choose presidents, one that ran counter to a popular as well as scholarly account. This is another member of the team, Hans Noel, now a professor at Georgetown University. The news museum here in Washington D.C. I went to there uh, went, went there a couple of years ago, long after the book was published, and walked through. They had at the time this exhibit on like how to become president. I walked through the whole uh, exhibit, and it was all about you know how to run for president and how you get the nomination, and everything. And it was exactly what the book, our book, is not. It was you as a candidate decide you want to run. You have to put together a campaign. You have to go to these primaries and win them and all this stuff. And there was no sense of anybody other than the candidates themselves and the voters um, fighting it out to get the nomination. And it felt so uh, wrong and out of touch, but that was the you know sort of the conventional wisdom of how people talked about the nomination process. There are these folk wisdoms about politics, how things work, and journalists, like those at the museum, retell these stories. These stories aren't wrong exactly, but they are rarely complete. By the mid-2000s, that was changing, and the party decides was at the center of this change, offering another argument based on extensive data collection for how parties in the United States work and how presidential candidates are chosen. Here's Jason Zengerly of the New York Times, someone who is an early reader of the book. The thing about The Party Decides, kind of when I encountered it, was 
it really seemed to explain, you know, recent political history. I mean, everything kind of fit into its thesis perfectly. And it was, it was easy to read it and sort of think it had a predictive power um, in terms of what was going to happen in 2016. I checked it out of the library. I live in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and I checked it out there. I think I read about it probably another writer wrote about it. Um, another political journalist wrote about it. I think it might have been Ryan Lizza, who was then at The New Yorker. I think I might have read about it from him. And I checked it out because it looked interesting and I sort of skimmed it. And then I gave it a more serious reading when I was doing a story on um, on Hillary Clinton for New York Magazine. And the idea of the story was kind of assessing Hillary Clinton as just a political candidate, which, you know, sounds like a kind of obvious idea. But she had become such a cultural figure at that point, we were just kind of trying to assess her as just like a raw political animal. And one thing that uh, I wanted to do in that piece that my editors wanted me to do was try to place her in the context of all the various sort of social science that was going on in terms of presidential campaigns. Before the New York Times, Washington Post, even MTV News came knocking. You've got to write the big book. So let's get started there. If this podcast series has shown anything, there are a lot of ways to write a book together, but a few elements are especially important. An idea, a theory, and a method. This group had all three. Here's Marty Cohen again, then a doctoral student at UCLA. He had an idea. I think it was the spring of 1999 um, where I was going to do a second field paper. We had field papers at UCLA uh, instead of qualifying exams. And I was sort of looking for a topic for a second field paper, and I came across presidential nominations. I had been interested in them since uh, undergrad, uh, going to Manchester, New Hampshire the day before the 1992 New Hampshire primary and following the candidates and the media around. And so I was very interested in that, and I was thinking about how the process seemed to have been changing, you know, sort of in the last decade in the 1990s. John Zoller, the third member of this group, was already a name and had already written a major book on public opinion. This new project was going to be centered on party politics, especially the presidential nomination process after the reforms of the 1970s. Why was it that when the back rooms were cleared of smoke, when the process was supposed to change, did the same candidates get chosen? If the parties were weakened, why did they still seem so powerful? David Carroll, also at UCLA and now a professor at the University of Maryland, was the fourth member of the group, and he was working on a theory. I had this view of parties as this coalition of groups, you know, that want something. And in John's earlier work, uh, he really thought about ideology as this, as this kind of this thing. And I'm usually skeptical about that. And the, the book and the related articles and uh, what people call UCLA school, I think, reflects this focus on groups. So there's the group, Marty, Hans, John, and David, all at UCLA in the 1990s, all interested in political party. Here's Hans Noel again. He had some ideas on a method. I definitely remember the point at which I got involved. And um, that was a, a, a lunch or coffee that I had with John Zoller. Um, about the time, I guess, that uh, that he and Marty were, were moving this project into something a little bit uh, bigger. And I don't know if, if John had a plan to do anything, uh, you know, he, he, you know met, he had an agenda when we talked or not, but 
um, as was typical with the that kind of thing, you know, we, we were talking about the stuff. I remember we were at, at the one of the coffee shops at, at, at UCLA and we were, we were talking about various things and we were talking about, you know, my projects and other projects and things he was working on. And this was one of the things that he was working on. And as is usually the case with John, with whatever he's working on becomes very, like he just is always wants to, to, to discuss it and always wants to ask questions and thinks, what, what, what's, what do you think about this? Um, and the, the place that uh, they were at at that point was, there was an idea that, you know, the, the kinds of candidates that were winning uh, the nomination were the kinds of candidates that would win uh, if there was a smoke-filled room. Maybe not exactly the same candidates, but more like the smoke-filled room type candidates than you would uh, expect, given the, the state of the literature. Um, at least that was John's impression. But then he said, but how would we know that? Like, how would we know what, who the party really wanted? And how would we, we do this? And so we were approaching it as this sort of like measurement question. How would we know what the party wanted? And so I said, well, don't they tell us? Don't they, you know, say in their endorsements what the party wants? With an idea, a theory, and a method, and perhaps most importantly, an advisor in John Soller, who could pull this all together. He was the glue. Together they had a team, each with a position to play. Here's Marty Cohen again. For me, I was sort of the, uh, the OCD guy. Um, in other words, I like to collect, not necessarily collect the data, but, you know, have the data and put the data in a form that we all could see and, and, and run some things that people asked me to run because I had collected the data. Marty wasn't the only one working on the data collection. Many of the roles were shared, including Hans's role. Here's how he explains how he was invited in and how that led to David's involvement, too. So yeah, very much this this one conversation over coffee in which we were brainstorming ways of doing a measurement. And then, you know, careful when you propose a measurement idea because someone might ask you to actually implement it. Part of what, what got uh, brought David in after, off this, which was probably already in the, um, in the conversation was, we started saying, well, but we know we missed some people and we would have this thing. And then we'd say, well, what about this? And it, it frequently came out to you, like, like well, well, David would just know who it was who was for this candidate and who was for this other candidate because David has a really good sense of, of the, you know, the people and the blood background and so forth. And so we can just ask David uh, about this. And, you know, it's not like David knows every person, but he would have an idea of who was for these people and who wasn't. And often that would come out in those conversations. And so then it became pretty clear, well, that we should probably just have David on, on the team. When you needed, we needed to know something that nobody knew off the top of our heads. That was what David was for. That was Marty Cohen again, who had fallen into this project nearly by accident from that conversation with John Zoller about a student paper. David Carroll fell into this in an even more awkward way. Here he is explaining how he came to the team. Probably a very important person in all of this is uh, Pam Singh, who was a UCLA graduate student. She said to me, uh, why don't you take a class with Karen Oren? She would appreciate you. And that turned out to be true. And then she said, why don't you take a class with um, uh, John Zoller? And, you know, I had gone to graduate school with this idea that I was going to use Zoller's work to study the Middle East. And he was not, John was on leave my first year in graduate school. I didn't see him and I didn't think about it that much. Uh, I think he was in Stanford for the year. And then he came back and he gave a talk. He and Larry Bartels and Ray Wolfinger and some other people had been invited by the Clintons in the spring of 1996 to the uh, dinner where the Clintons were kind of picking their brains about the 1996 election. And he out told a funny story about all this. 
And I, I went up to him afterwards, and this is my first time meeting him after having read his book in my MA program, you know, and being very impressed. And I said, uh, I asked him something about Bob Dole, I don't remember. And he, he looked at me and he kind of squinted. And he said, you have to stop being so obsessed by minutia. And it's the first thing he ever said to me. This is the classic graduate student experience. The first meeting with someone who doesn't yet know your name or who you are, but soon will. This first impression didn't deter David, and the team formed around this group that didn't plan to work together at the start. Here's Hans again. My memory of 2001 actually is uh, inconsistent with what we say in the acknowledgments, because I'm pretty sure it was uh, APSA and not the Midwest that we presented this at, although it does say the Midwest Political Science Association here in the acknowledgments. And uh, we, there was a, it was a very long conference paper. Um, so it was about 100 pages, which is kind of ridiculous for a conference paper. Paul Kelstedt was the discussant. And as is often the case with a conference paper, we sent the paper uh, very, very late. So this is, of course, you know, very uh, disrespectful to your discussant to send them a paper, you know, the day before the conference uh, presentation and then to send them 100 pages the day before is uh, is very disrespectful. But Paul was uh, nevertheless uh, willing to read the whole thing. And he did read the whole thing. And he was very capable of getting through 100 pages in almost no time at all and gave us a lot of really good uh, feedback and, and including a lot of, um, you know, high praise for uh, the ideas that were in it. I also remember doing writing the paper um, fairly much late into the night before leaving for the conference, and we were, you know, we were putting things together. We were, you know, doing, you know, everybody was spread uh, across. This was, you know, before the days of social media, but it was still we still had the internet, and so we were all in our own places, emailing back and forth with results uh, and models and then drafts. And I actually remember writing uh, the conclusion for that paper. And uh, this gets to your question about some of the, the phrases because. In the conclusion, I, you know, had a, a line about, um, you know, the the difference between the the nomination from, you know, its point of view of of John McCain at the time and say like what John McCain, how John McCain would see it, and the point of view from the party. And of course, there's a lot more people in the party, um, and that was something that I think clicked for for us as like that really gets at what part of what we're trying to say is uh, this difference from those two perspectives. Um, at least for me, has been a lot, uh, and so that, like that was, and that was uh, like you know two in the morning trying to get a conclusion into this paper so that we could send it to Paul so that we couldn't be, uh, wouldn't be so rude as to not have uh, sent the paper to them. What I gathered from talking to these co-authors is a process that was collaborative and divided equally, often marked by endless email chains and refining and adjusting the argument and the writing, balancing being bold and being realistic about what they wanted to say. Here's David Carroll again. I would say it was not efficient uh, and that probably, as Hans was talking about peer review, that uh, the end result was probably better because everyone was so involved, but um, it was slower. And there was a lot of uh, arguing and disagreeing about things. And I can't think of any particular like special resolution, but I do know that one thing that we spent a lot of time uh, discussing was the sort of tension between we're writing a book and we want to make a, an argument and we want to make the argument clear and have an actual argument that says, you know, that if you think about parties in this other way and you think about the importance of uh, these groups um, that are trying to, to balance their different interests and think about parties from that perspective, that's going to you know, make you think about nominations differently. Think about the nomination process from the point of view of those those groups and from the point of view of the party instead of the point of view of a bunch of candidates who just want to win the nomination, that's going to change things. And that's going to be, you know, that's like a big deal. 
and it matters. And at the same time, we're saying, well, we have, you know, it's very hard to get evidence and the evidence we have is imperfect. And the evidence that we have uh, might point different directions. And so we don't want to be super strong with our claims. I think that if we hadn't had, you know, if the, the idea that Hans is on a tenure clock and I'm on a tenure clock, if, if that hadn't been there um, in, in 2008, with it being somewhat of a messy year, uh, you know, it might have been that John might have thought, well, we need to keep working on this and let's nail it. Uh, and so maybe that would have been 2010 and we would have, you know, uh, I don't know. Uh, and of course, the thing is, if you're studying a moving target, which the presidential nomination process is, uh, you know, you have to end it at a certain point and make a kind con- you know, and say, okay, this makes a contribution. Uh, and it has, you know, we don't, we're not dogmatists and we recognize that things continue to evolve. Um, you know, we had this article in PS in 2016 about changes in the process. Uh, the rise of social media and the rise of small related rise of small donors uh, and so on. Uh, so, yeah, it was long. And I do think that, uh, you know, Hans was mentioning could have done it in 2002, 2003, really quick version. I think to an extent it was better project because uh, we took somewhat more time on it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. While they were collecting data and writing and revising, they also opened the project up to the world. In the book, they explain that the first time was at the 2001 Midwest Political Science meeting, but Hans Noel remembers it a little bit differently. I don't remember much about the presentation itself, but then afterwards, yes, uh, as, as we say in the, um, in the acknowledgments, uh, John Trinescu was there. We met with John uh, at... Um, in the in the book room and he said this is really great i'd like to it looks like it's aiming to be a book let's make it a book um and so then we more or less we didn't have a contract but we more or less said like okay we turn this into a book and we'll write a book and this is 2001 and i think we probably could have i mean 100 pages is pretty close to a decent length for a book we could have broken it into uh some chapters and stretched it out and fleshed it out and had a book published you know, within a year. The other early presentation was at UC San Diego. And I remember something Sam Popkin said, and he was uh, prophetic in this sense. Um, so this was in 2001. I can't tell you the date, but it was, I know that it was in 2001. And I know that it was in the spring. So it was, importantly, it was before September 11th. And he said to us, you know, he said to him, guys, basically this is right. This is the way it works most of the time. And Sam Popkin, for people who don't know, you know, he's a distinguished scholar. He was also active in uh, democratic politics and campaigns, uh, you know, uh, so he knew the inside and out of the thing. And he said, generally, you're right. This is how it goes most of the time. And this is why uh, Al Gore beat Bill Bradley, you know, for example, and why Bush beat McCain. But he says, you know, the problem is sometimes there is an issue, a a divisive issue that rises to the fore and party elites cannot 
reach consensus. It cannot paper over those differences. And he says, that's what happened in 72 with the Vietnam War and what happened in 68. And that's why McGovern was nominated. And if something like that happened, party elites can't cope with it. And I remember thinking, well, that's probably right, but there's nothing like that on the horizon. So there's nothing we have to worry about. When David told me this story, he realized that this feedback was important, but also pretended what was to come after the book came out. Shortly after the talk in San Diego, September 11th happened, altering the course of the Bush administration, making war and the protest against war salient to the public. And later, Barack Obama had won the Democratic Party's nomination. Before all of that, the book had to be published. Here's Hans and then David about how this book came to be. Before my political science days, I used to work at a newspaper um, at the Virginian Pilot. And the pilot was well known as a paper that was very involved in graphic design and, and visual display of stuff. So I, and I was a page designer. And so while I wasn't a, a graphic artist, I was involved a lot in things like that kind of thing. And I was on the edge of that. And so I had some thoughts on these things. I wasn't, couldn't do it very well, but I had a lot of thoughts. So when it came time to design the book cover, um, we, we well, were asked like, what kind of things do you want to do? We had the idea of a smoke filled room. And um, I had software from my graphic, you know, my, my newspaper days that you could actually do some good graphic design stuff with. I don't have the, you know, serial, the, I'm not an artist, so I don't have those, those skills. But um, I said, okay, well, I'll give it a shot just to give them a mock-up. And so I did a mock-up of a cover um, with the title and everything else um, that had an a, a image of a cigar in an ashtray and some smoke. And then uh, sent it off to them. And I said, I, you know, this, you know, we don't own that. We don't even have the rights to this picture. It's not really right, but this is the idea. Some kind of smoke children thing. And then of course the actual professional graphic artist at, uh, at Chicago, Chicago hired, um, took it from there and turned it into this. But the idea was that, you know, in the old days, you imagine that, uh, we know we have stories that the you know, candidate was chosen in some sort of smoke filled room and while that's not the case now, right, they're chosen out in the open, in public, everyone can see, but the process of the invisible primary, which even when it was in an invisible primary, it wasn't like it was uh, literally in secret. That's how we're able to study it is we can find it recorded in newspapers. Um, but that is the same idea, the same process of something that's happening in a like a smoke filled room. And so we wanted to evoke that same idea of a smoke filled room. And, um, and that's where we got to the cover. The person who gets credit for the title is Larry Bartels. Um, he, he really gave us the title. Um, and I think that that's been very helpful. I mean, it, the title uh, later, you know, became a meme. I mean, you see lots of references where people would, you know, take that and, and pun on it. It's, it's, you know, shows that you're having an impact. I think it's a very powerful title. I mean, there's a subtitle that's longer, but that's what people remember. I think with beating, we eventually decided that not all the reformers had the same goals. So maybe beating reform, which was the working title for years, was not strictly accurate. And then I think for a while, it was for a little while, it was just going to be called parties and presidential nominations, you know, just very plain vanilla. With a smoky cover and a clever name, the book was published in 2008. Nearly a decade of work was done. John Zoller was still at UCLA, and the others had scattered across the country to their first jobs. They had written the book that challenged convention, challenged both scholars and the journalists who told a different story.
What happened next was even more unconventional for an academic collaboration. We'll pick that up in part two. In early March 2020, as the Democratic primaries were underway, Nate Silver tweeted, the party decides authors are going to get a Nobel Prize if Biden comes back. At this point, Nate Silver is a big name, perhaps the biggest in the field of data journalism. He's a brand. But if his brand developed based on the work of predicting electoral outcomes, it's hard not to give the party decide some credit. This is the second part of the co-authored podcast focused on the collaboration between Marty Cohen, David Carroll, Hans Duell, and John Zoller. Earlier in the episode, we heard how the team came together, how they built the data to make their argument. The smoke-filled rooms were not gone, they just were different. An invisible primary now operated every four years, made up of party insiders and intense policy demanders who sifted through the acceptable candidates to decide. Endorsements from party insiders showed this, and Bill Clinton, Bob Dole, George Bush, even John Kerry illustrated why they were right. The initial reaction from academics was mixed. As any second-year grad student, I was a knee-jerk skeptic. You know, um, I, was, I was adequately trained at finding all of the problems with it. And for me, the problems were normative. I didn't like that party activists could beat reform. But there were lots of people at UCLA who were working on these kinds of things and making the point that party activists were really important. That was Kim E. Dion, a professor at UC Riverside, who also was a graduate student at UCLA at the time, but not directly involved in this project. This argument cut against conventional wisdom of a candidate-centered approach to parties and nominations and also showed that the reforms of the 1970s to empower citizen voters weren't working out as intended. Here's Kim again. And I remember, you know, talking about it in seminar and John Zoller just kind of looking at me like, nobody cares if you like it, Kim, <laughs> you know? And then, you know, him saying, well, I guess, I mean, it's important how people feel when they're reading the book. And it's important for us to know what that is. And so in a very John Zoller way, he was like, I, I guess we can take your feedback. <laughs> John Zoller is a very, he, I don't, he's such a scientist. I don't, I don't know how, um, how to describe him to people who don't know him, but he just, um, he just wants to know, you know, what's, what are the patterns? What, what can we actually say with the evidence that we have? For some scholars, this sums up what seemed wrong about the book. The argument may have been right, but accepting that was difficult. It wasn't difficult for others to accept the argument because it seemed to predict exactly what had happened so often. Perhaps nobody accepted the argument more famously than Nate Silver. Can the establishment stop him? Can they stop, can they stop Newt? Yeah. I mean, that's a contention of political science where we, I've been writing about recently where in theory they should maybe already have stopped Newt yeah. potentially. And it looked like, it looked like yeah, they, they had. They it looked like they, they had. Where you had every, every resource to play against Gingrich in, in yeah. before Iowa and it seemed to have work. And it was vindication for right. the establishment exactly. for right. This, right. this theory. That's Nate Silver in 2012 on national television suggesting to this group of political pundits that this little-known political science book is going to explain why Mitt Romney, not the front-runner Newt Gingrich, is going to win the Republican nomination. 
They laugh. But the theory and Nate Silver were onto something. Silver's star was just on the rise, and his brand of political prognostication that evolved much more than just what the party decided had to say was taking off. Built into these electoral models, along with all the polls, were endorsements and the imprint of the party decides. The expanding audience for Nate Silver quickly become the audience for the party decides book as well. You can be a very successful academic, certainly more successful than any of us, or even more successful than John, and really never appear in the paper. Um, it, it, you know, that's uh, even if you're studying politics. And so we did not expect this. I think what happened was that this book came out at the time that a couple of other major developments were occurring. Uh, one was the rise of data journalism, uh, in which Nate Silver is a pioneer. And he was a very big promoter of our book. And I gradually became aware of how important that was. Um, and others, others as well, but I think he was probably the single most important person outside the academy. Silver wasn't alone. Other journalists picked up the book. Here's Jason Zengerly from the New York Times again. Yeah, some of this, I think, comes out of 2008 and the rise of Nate Silver. Um, I think there was a real sort of almost like a trendiness that was... Uh, I think journalists really started to kind of look at social scientists and you know data analysts and stuff as as people who it was, it was this new kind of almost like sexy field that you could rely on to, or at least tap to gain some insight and some expertise. And I think there was a, there was a real effort among political writers to uh, add some kind of intellectual heft to their more, you know, conventional <laughs> observations by relying on social scientists and data journalism. And, you know, you saw that with, uh, obviously with 538 and with, I think, is it the upshot at the times there was all of, a, all of a sudden there were all these political scientists who were, you know, writing, <laughs> writing for these sites and kind of bringing their academic work and applying it to uh, kind of more, you know, popular, uh, audiences. The Economist magazine counted more than 700 citations to the book in the media, a massive response for an academic work, especially one that is deeply methodological, filled with all of the stuff that typically turns off most pundits. But this book was different. It hit at the exact point when data journalism and social media were taking off, contributing to the rise of these trends, but also benefiting from the bloggers and data reporters eager to share the compelling thesis. And then came 2016. You know, if you were influenced by the party decides and you felt that it had predictive powers, you would have completely discounted the notion of Donald Trump winning the Republican nomination, much less the White House. This is the other side of attention, especially the attention of the emerging social media ecosystem where nuance is often lost in favor of quick takes. Here's Hans Noel trying to make sense of all this response. There's a sense of like, there's takes and you're right and you're not right. And you have to evaluate like, you know, did, did this person predict things and so forth. We're, this is not a book that is meant to be, uh, most social science is not meant to be predicting the future. I don't, I don't think that's what we ought to be in the business of doing. This is a book that's an attempt to try to understand how we should think about political parties and the actors that are involved in presidential nominations. You know, they have been miscited, you know, even by political scientists, like not even not not even getting into kind of mainstream media where the general public, you know, their work, I, I think that 
they take very seriously when people don't read their work carefully and understand their argument well and miscite it. They're not looking for citation count, right? They're looking for people to understand their arguments and their evidence. And so when I would see people talk about the party decides in the context of the 2016 elections, I would just cringe because a, a lot of the times I'd be like, hey, you didn't read the book. you know. Kim is right. Most people haven't read the book. Many probably haven't even read the dozens of related papers, blog posts, and other writing about this theory. This is the big risk of going big. The attention to the central idea that captured the imagination of so many observers of politics can overwhelm the evidence, the data, the nuance that the authors poured over to try to get the book right. Here's Hans again. I think the, our framework is the right one, but also... We, took, we didn't just say that framework, we built on it. We went beyond that and said, okay, and then if that's the framework, then we'd expect them to do these things. And if they do these things, these other things should happen. And if those other things should happen, then on and on. And some of that didn't play out because the world is stochastic and because the world is changing and because uh, some of the things that they um, used to be able to do, they couldn't do. And some of the things uh, that they could have done, they just didn't and so forth. And there's a lot of explanations. And so I think we do this in general. We're not just with this book. We do this in a lot of places where, oh, well, uh, economic theory didn't predict the collapse. So I guess we should give up on economics departments. Well, that's not, I think, the right approach. But at the same time, clearly there are things that we got wrong and that are wrong in the book, either wrong because they don't apply to the future or possibly wrong because we overlooked them or didn't take them seriously enough or didn't uh, certainly didn't explore the implications of them enough. Um, and so we are talking about doing a, another edition. So another edition of the book is coming, looking ahead to future elections and the nomination process that at least in 2020 looks a lot like they would have predicted. Maybe they'll even get that Nobel Prize Nate Silver predicted. The criticism and snark probably won't stop, even with another edition, but the authors seem to get this. Maybe this is the greatest value of a collaboration. You get to celebrate together and also deal with the criticism as a group. For all the solitary authors out there reading negative responses and reviews alone, they don't have a team around to share the negative feedback, but also don't have others so closely related to the project to share in the praise. And the Party Decides team has gone through this all together. Here's Marty Cohen again. It's not to the point where, you know, all publicity is good publicity, but, you know, even when we're being criticized, I think we have you know, weathered that storm pretty well, and we've been gracious about it, and I think that that's all you can ask for. This episode of the co-authored podcast has been produced by Sam Anderson, supported by the American Political Science Association, John Jay College, and the New Books Network. Thank you very much for listening.